Let's open our hearts. Let's just close our eyes and open our hearts with a word of prayer. And let's still our minds from a busy weekend and a busy Saturday, no doubt. We lift our hearts to you, God. And we open our hearts. We lift them and we open them. And we are expectant and hopeful of what we will receive tonight. May we not only receive, may we give. May the spirit of Christ that abides in us, as Paul said, our hope of glory, may that glory spread. May bodies be touched and spirits be mended and relationships be healed and all the stuff that we need. We lift it to you. We just take a moment to breathe deeply and just lift our needs and our gratitude. Tangled together, we lift them to you. We receive tonight, we give tonight. We are thankful. Be with us, we pray. We know you are in Christ's name. And God's people said amen. Peace of the Lord be with you. And also with you. Thanks be to God. The fifth chapter of, according to St. Luke, he is, uh, Jesus has begun to call his disciples. And he has uh, healed someone who was a, a paralytic. And when people are doing good, they almost always uh, experience someone complaining. And so the religious leaders often have a time of complaint. And Jesus answered those, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then verse 33 in Luke 5. Then they, the leaders, said to him, John's disciples, like the disciples of the Pharisees, frequently fast and pray, but your disciples eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you can't make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and sews it on an old garment. Otherwise, the new will be torn and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new wine, but says, the old is good. 
Thanks be to God. The verse of scripture that Lee just read is a profound verse. And one I want to read just bit by bit with you. Verse 33, this is the first, Jesus actually tells three mini parables in this text. And this is the first of the parables that Jesus actually tells in his ministry. Verse 33 of this text that Lee read said that some people said to Jesus, they had a problem with Jesus. And they said, you know, some of John's followers, of course, John was his cousin, uh, the predecessor of Jesus, the prophet that Jesus later called the greatest of the prophets of Israel that proclaimed the way of Jesus. The predecessor of Jesus, Jesus said, John's followers, my cousin's followers, or rather the people said to Jesus, his followers often pray and they go without eating. Anybody here come from a religious background that emphasizes fasting? Would you raise your hand? How did you do with fasting? I always fasted really well between meals, mostly. <laughs> Whenever the preacher would say, we're going to do a, a, you know, a fast in the church, I would always offer to fast breakfast because I never ate breakfast anyway. Fasting is an interesting subject. Uh, the Hebrew people literally conjoined prayer and fasting. They believed that people giving up food for the course of a day or the course of a week somehow moved God. It was a form of sacrifice. Think about sacrifice. The idea of sacrifice to appease the gods. There was a demanding God who was requiring some offering on your part. And what, what better offering? The idea of fasting says what better offering than to take one of the natural parts of our daily life and say I'm going to forgo that. So fasting was an attempt by the Jewish people to move God. They believed that if they fasted when they prayed, that somehow the prayers would be more effectual. That God would be stirred. That God would see how much skin they had in the game. How serious they were about the matter and God would move. I grew up in the old Pentecostal church and I remember, I remember people quite often fasting for particular matters. One vivid memory I have is of a young couple in our church that uh, their little child had leukemia. And I will never forget this. this it marked me. Uh, the young mother, the one who birthed this child, as she was walking that child through the process of leukemia, everything from chemotherapy to an abscessed rectum, three years old, trauma and nurses and curtains and IVs, the mother was so deeply pained by her child's saga that the mother fasted and cotton she fasted 40 days. The last week of that fast, she um, had some nutrients. I, I don't remember if she juiced or she did something, but think about that. Elka, she literally was trying to move God by offering her food and the child died and she lost her faith I'll never forget that Jason she lost her faith she not only lost her child but she lost God in, the entire, in her faith in the entire process 
It's an interesting idea, this idea of fasting. With all of that said, last week, and I don't, Jesus said when you fast, don't talk about it, but I, I, I don't sense any pride or arrogance in the matter of fasting. Last week, I just needed to kind of clear my brain, and I went away three days and didn't eat. And it's amazing how when you don't eat, when you withhold from the body, it's amazing the things you're able to tap into, the things you're able to hear. The first day is miserable, the second day is worse, and the third day you begin kind of getting in a zone where you realize there's deeper matters than the physical, the corporeal, the material. And it was very insightful for me. So fasting has been a part of the Judeo-Christian tradition and other religious traditions for a long time. But some people were bothered and they came to Jesus some of the Jewish people, Jesus was a Jew, and they, they said to Jesus, it's bothersome to us that John's followers fasted and even the followers of the Pharisees, some really good, pristine Jewish people, they also fast, but your disciples never go without eating or drinking. They never fast. Jesus responded to them in really interesting response. Jesus said, you know, the friends of a bridegroom, the friends of a bridegroom, they don't go without eating while he is still with them. But the time will come when he will be taken from them and then they'll go without eating. What in the world? The friends of a bridegroom don't fast while the bridegroom was with them. A couple of weeks ago, I went to New York to do two interviews on Fox News. I know, it's amazing. I was on Fox News, me on Fox News. I was the nemesis, please understand. I was the nemesis on Fox News. But I went to do two interviews on, on Fox News, and the interviewer, Lauren uh, Green, who is their chief religi religious correspondent, a really dear person, and it was really a couple of great interviews, actually. On the plane ride back from New York City, I was seated, unfortunately, in the middle, in the middle seat, and I would have given a lot that night for the uh, window seat or the aisle seat. How many of you are window people, and how many are aisle people? Window people, aisle people. Hmm. Interesting. I'm an aisle person. I don't, I, claustrophobia gets to me. But I, how many, I wonder about this. How many of you are actually middle seat people? Nobody is a middle seat person. I get so aggravated because the two people on the aisle and the window think they get both armrests. That's not fair. There should be like a rotation. I literally want to subdivide the, the hours of the flight and tell them, okay, for 47 minutes, you get two of the armrests, but then you got to shift your arms, so I get one of them. we got to make this fair. Well, I was the middle guy, and I was sitting beside a young woman, and I said, where are you from? And she said, Syracuse. And I said, why are you coming to Nashville? She said, I'm going to a bachelorette party. Did you know Nashville has become one of the chief bachelorette party places in the United States? All you got to do is go down to Broadway and Second, and you will find out that Nashville is one of the chief bachelorette places. And you know, what is the number one thing bachelorettes and their parties do in Nashville on Broadway? 
Anybody? The Pedal Tavern. All right, let's just get raw here tonight. Has anybody ever done a pedal tavern? Oh, we got a couple pattern. We got a couple pedal taverns. Does, who doesn't know what a pedal tavern is? Okay, a pedal tavern. It is a complex bicycle of about ten or twelve seats with bicycle pedals and some folk in the middle who are going to keep you supplied throughout the entire bicycle ride with more than coffee and tea. Can we just say that? And so these bachelorettes descend upon Nashville, and one of the chief things they do is they get on these, uh, taver these pedal taverns, and they ride all over our fair city while they are drinking beer and getting fully schnockered and enjoying themselves, and there's always the bride-to-be who has the, the veil on. It's really just a lovely, classy experience for all involved. <coughs> if you've ever been to a... Okay, point is, I, I digress. If you've ever been, been to a bachelorette party or a bachelor party, you understand exactly what Jesus is saying here. Jesus said at bachelorette parties or bachelor parties. The friends of a bridegroom, the friends of a bride, they don't fly in from Syracuse. They don't spend three days in Nashville to fast. This young woman that I was sitting beside, she was a mother, an accountant, a wife, and she was very excited about letting her hair down she was going to celebrate the marriage of her friend. Jesus picked up on that. And when the Pharisees said, or when the religious leaders said, why did John's disciples fast? And the Pharisees' followers also fast, but your disciples aren't fasting. Jesus said, because the bridegroom was with them. Interesting. Jesus said, because the Pharisees and the disciples of John, the Zealots, the Essenes, there were a lot of denominations who were Jewish people, Jewish people who had developed a by and by in the future theology. Jewish people who could not deal with their present deficit, their present circumstances. The Jewish people who were this little nation situated between three continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa, situated between the Ottomans, the Assyrians, the Mesopotamians, and the Africans, the Egyptians. This little nation of people in the area on the east coast of the Mediterranean called the Levant, where Palestine, Syria, Israel is now, it was called the Levant then. There were a lot of little people groups in that area and our ancestors, the Jews, were one of them. Those little people groups were in a very strategic area because these three continents did, they did commerce together. And this area of the Levant, there on the east shore of the Mediterranean, not only maritime, but topographically, you know, on the earth, it was, a, it was an intersection, it was a thoroughfare. It was 
It was the medium by which each of these continents and each of these empires got to the other commercially. And so it was a hot spot. And that little hot spot, that little hub, never got localized by the Asians, the Africans, or the Europeans. These little groups of people who always had their king, their identity, their religion, they were feisty enough and they were formidable enough that they could always fend off the major empires. But they were always having to ascribe allegiance to one of the empires, though they would never fully submit. And our people, the Jewish people, the Israelites were one of those groups. Often they were like a rag doll that was being fought over between a Rottweiler, a Doberman, and a German Shepherd. They never were their own substantial empire, but they were always having to acquiesce or to give to these other larger empires. Each of them had their own delusions of grandeur. Each of them had their own sense of grandiosity. And each of them attributed those delusions or that grandiosity to a revelation they had gotten from their gods. And the Jewish people, the Israelites, were no exception. They had a God named Yahweh. And Yahweh said to this little bitty people group, you're not always going to be a rag doll torn between the mouths of these vicious dogs. You're not always going to be a subservient, acquiescent subgroup. One of these days, the people of Israel believed you're going to be the kingpin. One of these days, you're not going to be a thoroughfare fought over. One of these days, you're not going to be a, a chattel slavery provider for these other nations. One of these days, you're actually going to establish an empire in this little space, and Jerusalem is going to be a mountain to which all of the nations shall genuflect. And Lee, they believed that. And you know what? It may have been true. Paul said God chooses foolish things to confound the wise. The old hymn says little is much when God is in it. Jesus said the kingdom operates interestingly inverted to the economy of the world. Sometimes up is down and down is up and first is last and last is first and those who abase themselves will be exalted and those who exalt themselves will be abased and weak things actually are strong and strong things are actually weak and they believe that they believed that one of these days they would establish a kingdom of equanimity that would not force slavery that would not be unfair they believed they would do better than the Ottomans or the Egyptians or the Babylonians they believed that they would Establish a mount in Jerusalem and there would be a king on that mount who would be completely equitable and fair and loving. And they believed the way that that was going to happen was that a Messiah was going to come. And that Messiah was going to establish this nation and was going to so arrest the hearts and the minds of people around the world that all of the nations would genuflect and would acquiesce and would give in. And so from the time of captivity, which was about 500 years before Jesus, when the Israelites were one more time taken into captivity and subjugation by another country, 
when they were finally released by the Persians from Mesopotamia to come back to their land and habitate that land, they came back with a vision that a Messiah would rise from among them and would establish a kingdom. And they longed for that Messiah. And they so longed for that Messiah that they devoted themselves religiously, personally, familially, socially, every aspect of their life. Economically, they devoted themselves to the coming of this Messiah. This is absolutely a germane conversation as we move toward Advent and that longing of the Jews for a Messiah. But in their longing for this messianic coming, this marauding king who would drop empires like Rome and the Greeks to their knees. They fasted and they prayed a lot. They fasted and they prayed and they longed. Their religious spiritual devotion was committed to this idea. And then Jesus came into that environment. His cousin John had laid the foundation for him was a complete faster and prayer. Uh, he was an ascetic who deprived himself and lived in the wilderness. And down by the River Jordan, when his cousin Jesus came along, John said, here's the guy. This is the dude that we've been fasting and praying for. And as Jesus stepped into that spotlight as the Messiah, he gathered a group of people around him, and interestingly... Instead of continuing fasting and praying and living that ascetic, self-depriving lifestyle, that austere lifestyle, they started partying. They did peddling taverns. Jesus was accused of being a wine-bibber. Jesus was accused of partying too much. Jesus was accused, along with his disciples, of having way too much fun. And it was that context that confused these religious leaders that caused them to ask Jesus, why did everybody up till this moment fast and pray, but your guys aren't fasting and praying, and really you aren't either? And Jesus said, well, it's like this. People fast and pray looking for a bridegroom. It's interesting. Last night, I was in the car with Nina, and we were, she was asking me some of my favorite songs of the years, and I've always loved story songs. And I let her listen to a song by Kathy Matea. Anybody remember Kathy Matea? Kathy Matea had a song back in the early 90s Ted called, Where Have You Been? Beautiful song. Three verses that tell the story of a couple's life. The first verse is this young woman who has grown past her sociological prime and she never thinks she's going to get married and then a young man comes into her life. And he comes into her life and she has been fasting and praying and longing for him. And when he comes... With great relief, she says, where have you been? And they get married. And the second verse is beautiful. He's a salesman. He normally comes home at 5.30 or 6. But on this stormy night in the world's sands of cell phones and 
no ability to communicate. It's 8.30 and it's storming and he's still not there. And then at 8.30 when she is most afraid, headlights pull into the driveway and she rushes to the door and she embraces this love of her life and says, where have you been? And then the third verse, they're two old people in a geriatric nursing home and she has lost all memory and she's never said a word in a couple of years. But then finally one day they wheel him into her room and after all that time of not speaking anything, her mind raged with Alzheimer's when he wraps her, or grasps her hand and she looks at him, she says, where have you been? So the three verses is really lovely. Where have you been in three stages of life? But that first verse, that longing for a bridegroom, that longing for a bride, Jesus said it's appropriate to fast and pray in that season. But Jesus said something that the world was not conscientiously or consciously ready to accept, neither Jew nor Gentile. Jesus said, the reason that I'm not fasting and praying and the reason my disciples aren't fasting and praying, listen to this, 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years before Trump and Sanders and Clinton, 2,000 years before North Korea, 2,000 years before Soviet unions and Berlin walls, 2,000 years before Charlottesville and Las Vegas, Jesus said the reason that we are imbibing and doing pedal taverns and we are wine bibbers is because when I came, I came and I was simply saying to you, the kingdom is here. kingdom is here and actually has always been here if you would but see it 2,000 years ago not 200 years ago with the advent of the United States not 500 years ago 700 years ago with the Magna Carta not 1700 years ago with the church's creeds but lead 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to the earth and Jesus was God in flesh. I am that orthodox. He was God in flesh. And Jesus was not saying, surprise, I have arrived. Jesus in flesh was saying, hello, this is where I've always been. And the kingdom is here and the wedding is prepared. If your heart's are but ready to entertain it. And Jesus said, I came to simply say that it is not at a particular point in history. It's not with the advent of a nation. It's not with the coming of a second person of a trinity. It's not with the commission of Moses and a law from a mountain. It's not Buddha under a tree. It's not the Indus Valley on the north side of India and the south side of Pakistan in the fourth century before Christ when the major religions of Buddhism and Hinduism and Christianity or Judaism were developed. There is no particular period when the good news or the kingdom is more accessible to you than it always is. But Jesus said the kingdom is always in your heart and it's always in your mind 
And I am simply waiting on a person, a people, a nation, a world who will recognize that the kingdom is not to be fasted for and prayed for and longed for and waited for. It is not out there. It is in here. And it is waiting for us at any moment, at any time, to wake up and recognize what has always been true of us. Jesus was not God saying, here I am. Jesus was God saying, here I have always been. And Jesus said, in that moment of the bridegroom's appearing, which has always been happening, the bridegroom waits Ultimately, Jesus said, the bridegroom, now this is the interesting verse, and we'll close with this and we'll pick up with the rest in a couple of weeks. This is important stuff for Judeo-Christian people to get. This is at the base of our philosophy, our worldview, and it's brilliant. Jesus said, ultimately, the bridegroom will be taken away. And when the bridegroom's taken away, Susan, he said, when the bridegroom's taken away, then they'll fast and pray. Now, that's the most enigmatic, strange thing, isn't it? Unless you understand Jewish culture. And Jewish culture said that a young man and a young woman would become betrothed. And when they became betrothed, that young man and that young woman given to one another by their families, dowries exchanged, that young man and young woman in a betrothal stage would begin a period of courtship, a period of romance, a period of engaging one another and developing love. And after a year in the Jewish culture, as that young man and that young woman gave themselves to one another romantically, uh, something pretty profound would happen, something ripping and tearing would happen that young man after a year of romance would not then get to marry the young woman he then would commit himself to military service and the young bridegroom would leave the bride and he would go into military service and he would serve the nation of Israel militaristically and he would serve militaristically for a year to two years, and then he would come home if he survived. Psalm 56, David hearkened to that, that idea or that paradigm, and David said that when we pray and we cry in our prayers, he said literally as our tears fall from our eyes, God bottles our tears as a bride. Literally, the text in the Hebrew, God bottles our tears in the manner of a bride. Young brides who were engaged to a bridegroom, after the year of romance, when they, their bridegroom would be taken away into the military, they literally would make a little piece of pottery and they would contour it when it was soft to the contour of their jawline and when it would harden that little vessel would be able for the next year to be pressed against their face and as the young woman would pray for the safe return of her bridegroom she would catch her tears in that bottle 
And David said, that's the way God is. God bottles all of our tears when we pray. And our tears literally fill up as a memorial in that bottle. And that young bride, when her bridegroom would eventually come home, her sign of devotion to him, think about the pathos, the emotion of this, when she saw him. I mean, this Carolyn, we, we all see on television when that, you know, at a halftime of a football game, when a young man or woman from, from military service comes home and their kids see them for the first time. It's really a powerful moment. They get off the plane and they're on the tarmac. The young woman runs and meets her husband or young husband runs and meets his wife and the kids are there. Maybe even the baby that was born while they were gone. It's a powerful moment. In Hebrew history, the young bride would take her bottle of tears and the first thing she would do would not be to hug him or kiss him or touch him. She would hand him to Marco her bottle of tears. These are the tears I cried praying for you to come home. Jesus said when the bridegroom is taken away, then the friends of the bridegroom and the, friend, the bridesmaids and the, and, the, and the men of honor, the groomsmen, they will all fast. But Jesus was essentially saying in that moment, there is no need at this point for the bridegroom to be taken away. The kingdom is here and the kingdom is being offered. And the beauty of that message, and I'll pick up wine and wineskins next week. I knew this was going to be too much to get into in one week. But the beauty of that is for the Christian church, our central message is that any moment, at any time, in any place, in any era, in any nation, and in any heart. If we are ready, Kathy, to open our fellowship hall to a homeless guy like Antoine, if we are ready at any moment, Sandy, to open our fellowship hall, and when I sat with him and he looked at me, and told me his story. He told me a story that is so phenomenal I can't even repeat at this moment. But at any moment I can recognize that in Antoine, a man who says, will you please put me on your list so I can come back here. I said, why do you come back here? Why do you want to come back here? Roy, he said, because the casserole was especially good and the people were sweet. Listen to me, North Korea and Donald Trump notwithstanding, Hillary Clinton and the DNC notwithstanding, North Korea and Iran and nuclear armament notwithstanding, at any minute this world understands that it really comes down to the fact, Van, that the casserole was especially good tonight and the people were sweet. Jesus said, then the bridegroom is with you and the wedding can happen. But if you don't receive that and you miss Antoine and you miss how good the casserole is, you put it all off to the future and you keep waiting on a heaven and streets of gold and a, one, a, a day when a Messiah is going to come in and fix it all for you. 
And that kind of by and by, pie in the sky theology that so many of us have known as Christianity is actually the opposite of Christianity. The bridegroom is here, the bride is here. Let's get on the dadgum pedal tavern and enjoy the casserole. Can you say amen? That is the kingdom and that is the message of Jesus. And that's what we're trying to do here at Grace Point and I think we're doing in a lot of special ways.